Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. My guest today is Edward Siegel. Mr. Siegel has been a campaign manager, press secretary, and aide to Democratic and Republican presidential and congressional candidates, including, among others, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. He's also a senior contributor to Forbes and leadership strategy. He's with me today because, in addition to all that, he's a historian of trains, and he's written a new book titled Whistle Stop Politics, Campaign Trains and the Reporters Who Covered Them. Mr. Siegel, welcome to the program. Great to be with you today, Grant. Well, thanks for making the time. Well, I just want to start, actually, a little bit differently. I'm going to read something from your book, and then, then I'll start asking you questions. But it was this wonderful quote from Harry Truman that I think just speaks in so many different ways to the times we're living in. Harry Truman said this, and you've got it right at the beginning of the first chapter of your book. You get a real feeling of this country and the people in it when you're on a train, speaking from the back of a train. And the further you get away from that, the worse off you are, the worse off the country is. Well, here we are now in 2023. Uh, Let's go back to the beginnings of of whistle-stop politics. Uh, How and why did this method of campaigning first start? Well, the real reason it started was for candidates and presidents to connect with voters. The first campaign train was done by uh, Harrison in 1836, running for president. He wasn't able to get too far on the train because, frankly, there was not not that many train tracks. <laughs> and I think the first, uh, just a matter of a few miles. He did not win his uh, race for the White House. But he really set an example for other politicians that as a nation's train system grew, so did interest in using campaigns to reach and connect with voters. Yeah, and I wanted to wanted to ask you about the um, the the take up of the new technology of campaigning. What was new then from trains? Once once Harrison started this, is it something that other candidates and the parties recognize the value of immediately and they jump right on it or? Or did this idea of, hey, let's let's use this method of getting on a train and talking to people, did that sort of take time to develop and spread? It took time to develop and spread. It literally took decades for it to become an acceptable way of connecting with voters. Why? Because for decades it was seen as a, as taboo for someone to seek, to actively seek the office. The office was supposed to seek the person not the other way around. And it wasn't until decades later in 1858 with Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln running for Senate in Illinois that both of them used campaign trains one way or the other as part of their Lincoln-Douglas debates. And it was decades after that until 1896 with William Jennings Bryan, who is credited by historians as running the first what would, would we regard today as a true whistle-stop campaign train tour. Yeah, I was wondering about that. So that was, in a sense, kind of the imprint moment and the the, the Bryan campaign there. Yes, he, he spoke to hundreds of thousands of people around the country, traveled thousands of miles seeking votes. He didn't win, but he really set the standard of what we regard today as a campaign train whistle stop tour. And is Bryan, do you think, the candidate of all the candidates that have used this over time, the one who made the best use of it, or is there another is there another person that you would put in that category of the single best user of the whistle stop campaign? Well, Brian, he set the standard, but I think 
Harry Truman in 1948 really showed the value. He ran, of course, a famous underdog campaign for the White House. No one gave him a chance in the hell of winning. He did win, and, uh, you know, hindsight is always 2020. Uh, historians credit his campaign train tour, not just one, but several campaign tours in 1948 for his ability to connect the voters and win them over. And I think that's the most effective use of campaign trains that I've seen in the hundreds that I've uh, written about and researched. On on Truman's campaign, uh, if, if you had to break it out about why it was so effective, was it really about that Truman as a candidate, maybe his rhetorical style or his message fit the, the train stop sort of setting best? Or was it uh, something about the time then in 1948 uh, is what 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 was it exactly that that made it so effective? Well, I think it was regarded as almost a standard thing to do for many presidential candidates. People almost expected and demanded that a candidate campaign by train, and if they were anywhere close to their city or town, they hoped that uh, they would stop. And I think there was very much of a curiosity factor with Harry Truman because, as I said, he was not given any chance of winning, and people came out as much, I think, as curiosity as as in support. But it was very effective, what I call political eye candy, to use the campaign train to generate interest, attract crowds, create publicity, and to help get their point across as effectively as possible. And that's what happened. Uh, dozens of reporters uh, were on a Truman's campaign train, they would many, many times rush out of the train when the train stopped at a station, listen to what he had to say, run back to the press car, and uh, and work on their stories. And that is a true great example of a technique to use campaign trains to connect with voters and generate news coverage about your policies and positions. Do you think that it was Truman's campaign? Obviously, he won in the end, and like you say, nobody gave him a chance against Dewey for, for most of that campaign time. But do you think it was Truman's campaign that was most helped by this technique? You know, which 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 of the presidential campaigns did the technique itself, do you think, made made the difference for them? Well, I think each candidate got the most out of it. Sometimes it would work and sometimes it would it wouldn't. Mm. But it was a campaign tactic. It was not a guarantee prescription for uh, success. It was the opportunity to get people's attention. And uh, usually it was what the candidate said on the back of the train that would either help or hurt them in their race for the White House. Some of the candidates uh, made unintentional headlines for what they said. Mm. Uh, Dewey, of course, is famous for uh, when his train started uh, prematurely while he was still speaking. He criticized what he called the idiot uh, engineer, the idiot conductor, and uh, called him a lunatic and he should be shot. And that generated a lot of press coverage, not favorable, a lot of headlines. And that was a great example of a candidate really blowing it and creating the kind of publicity no no candidate would ever want. Now, of course, Truman and his staff, they picked up on that comment very quickly, and they used uh, Dewey's comments against him, and they were able to score political points, which helped uh, Truman's candidacy. And in particular, I'm thinking uh, Truman sort of running more as a person of the people, that Dewey gaffe just played right into that. 
He was a man of the people. He got better uh, the more he spoke. And uh, one of the stories I talk about in the book is how Truman uh, enjoyed playing poker at night after a hard day of campaigning on the train. And he would often invite reporters to play poker with him, and they uh, accepted. And uh, Truman would often ask the reporters what they thought of his speeches. Uh-huh. And interestingly, the journalists would give him their opinions about how well or poorly he did and how he could improve his speaking style. And Truman followed their advice. And reporters later said that Truman got better uh, the more they they listened to and followed the advice of the journalists. You'd never see that today, that kind of interaction. But, but then it was part and a great example of the collegial nature and the working relationships between candidates and reporters who covered them on the campaign trains. Yeah, impossible to imagine that level of trust. You're listening to the campaign. To, to, there, you've got it in my head now. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with Edward Siegel. He's a former campaign manager and press secretary and the author of a new book titled Whistle Stop Politics, Campaign Trains and the Reporters Who Covered Them. So those are all the good stories for using uh, trains. You mentioned Dewey's gaffe. Um, is there is there any use of this technique where it just was a big disaster for the candidate? It just really didn't work at all and worked against them. Well, I think it worked every time, uh, depending upon how well or poorly they spoke from the back of the train. There were other gaps, of course. Uh, Truman made his share um, when he, in California, uh, said something that was interpreted as being favorable to Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. Mm. Uh, the reporters jumped on that. It might have been a throwaway line, nothing in uh, Truman's uh, prepared remarks that I could find. And that kind of uh, news coverage did not help uh, uh, Truman. Of course, the campaign trains have also been the scene of political drama. In 1952, news broke while Richard Nixon was campaigning in California from his train about allegations that he had improperly used uh, funds from donors, which was later called the uh, the Nixon Fund. That led days later for him giving the famous checkers speech on television. But that whole drama played out on Nixon's train and also on Dwight Eisenhower's train, who was campaigning in a different part of the country. So sometimes these campaign trains are the setting of political drama, intrigue, and uh, that could have an impact on an election. Hmm. Um, so uh, you, you've you've accumulated all these interesting stories, and you've related many of them already um, in our conversation. In your research, is is there any is there any one story that has stuck with you more than the others that you've carried with you? I really like the story of. Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, running for vice president in 1960 on John Kennedy's ticket. And uh, campaign trains could be a very effective way of getting people's attention and making a memorable uh, impression on people about the train. And and Johnson actually helped plan his own campaign train trip and choreographed what was going to happen before, during, and after the arrival of the train. When his train would pull into a station, his staff at his direction would play loudspeakers on a PA system, uh, the Yellow Rose of Texas. And as the train slowed into the station, the volume was turned up louder and louder and louder, and you could hear that song for blocks around the train station. The train stopped at the depot, and for minutes there was nothing happening. All of a sudden, 
behind from behind a blue curtain on the back of the train. Johnson comes out, waves his hand, and the crowd goes wild. He gives his speech, he makes his remarks, and he had arranged with a campaign aide that before he was done speaking, he was supposed to pull the train out of the station. And just as the train was leaving, he, Johnson was still speaking, and he would yell, they're taking me away, they're taking away, help me, they're taking me away, vote Democratic. And it was a dramatic <laughs> entrance and a dramatic departure. And I think that's a great example of the effective use of campaign trains and how candidates can get the most out of this important campaign tactic. It's <laughs> a great story. So um, what was it like then for the reporters covering these whistle-stop campaigns? You mentioned that they had a press car. You got a great picture in your book of, of that. Um, is, is there anything unique about that particular journalistic experience, do you think? Many reporters regarded it as one of the hardest jobs in journalism. Why? Because they had to be on call 24-7, because although the candidates would have a set schedule, sometimes the train would stop uh, for apparently no reason at all, but it turned out there were a crowd of people who had gathered trackside or a small community, and the engineer or the staff or the conductor uh, wanted to make sure that the small crowd who had gathered uh, had the opportunity to see and hear the candidate. So these impromptu trackside speeches were uh, an important part of the history of campaign trains, and sometimes they would generate as much news coverage as uh, 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 planned speeches. There's a story I talk in the book where uh, Truman's train uh, stopped in the middle of the night. A crowd of uh, young people wanted to hear the president, and uh, Truman pops out, gives a few brief remarks. A student asks, uh, Mr. President, what's your stand on civil rights? And Truman said, because this is very controversial at the time, he was in favor of civil rights, part of the Constitution, and should be part of the Democratic platform. There was only one or two reporters who had gotten up and went out to watch this exchange. It made news with the papers that covered them, and other reporters who fell asleep who were asleep or did not want to go out in the middle of the night, they had to play catch-up uh, and find out what he said in order to file their own stories about this impromptu trackside speech. I want to come back to an aspect about that story you just told when when we talk in the second half of the program. You're listening to The Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm talking with former campaign operative and Forbes senior contributor Edward Siegel. And we've been discussing his new book titled Whistle Stop Politics, Campaign Trains and the Reporters Who Covered Them. So I understand that you've had some experience with a whistle stop campaign. Tell me about that. Yeah, my experience working as a campaign aide for a member of Congress, uh, he wanted to generate news coverage about his reelection campaign. And at the time, he did not have an opponent in the primary and he asked me, uh, you know, what we can do to generate news coverage for him. Um, I was a, and still am a recovering political science major, and I was fully aware of uh, uh, Harry Truman and his underdog campaign train in 48. I did some research, and it turns out there was a set of train tracks in the congressman's district. They were not being used by Amtrak because they had discontinued the route. And I proposed to the congressman and his campaign staff that we reenact a Truman-style campaign train tour. They liked the idea. Uh, they were able, in fact, to rent a tr uh, two locomotives and two passenger trains 
from the old Santa Fe Railway, and we ran a 102-mile campaign train tour in central uh, Oklahoma. And it was while I was doing research for the trip and trying to put together some briefing material for reporters, I got frustrated because I really couldn't find a lot of good information about the comprehensive history of campaign train in American politics. The congressman won his re-election campaign, and afterward it became my hobby, uh, sometimes my obsession, and ultimately my book in collecting, finding, and sharing these hundreds of stories that I found about hundreds of candidates, stories, images, and a great part of American history that I want to remind people about. So what was the last known example of a whistle-stop campaign in the United States? The one that you were on or a different one? No, actually, a lot of people will be surprised. The last presidential candidate to campaign by train was Joe Biden in 2020. He campaigned for several hours on the back of a train in Ohio and Pennsylvania. And uh, there was a Senate candidate in Vermont in 2022 who campaigned by train. He won his election. And that's one of the great myths of the history of campaign trains. People think that it's not done anymore or that Harry Truman was the last one to do it. Uh, There's been more than 200 candidates running for president, vice president, governor, congress, even for mayor, who have used campaign trains as effective campaign tactic. And I think it's important for people to get and understand the true history of campaigning and what uh, candidates could learn today from how uh, whistle-stopping candidates sought office uh, in years past. Yeah, I wanted to ask a couple questions about that. And one of them is certainly I'm more familiar as a uh, observer with the campaign bus. And uh, certainly I can think of a lot of different presidential campaign buses, the, you know, John McCain's, for example. Um, is can, can the bus do what the train did, or is there something special about, about a train? Well, obviously a bus can go where no trains can go. You need, obviously, a set of tracks. Right. And as I talk about in the book, there have been at least one candidate who dressed up a bus to make it look as if it was a campaign train, <laughs> put a platform on the back, hooked up what looked to be like smoke smokestacks on the top of the uh, bus, and went around. This was in Wisconsin. Uh, he covered thousands of miles in the state, campaigning from the back of his campaign train bus, and he generated a lot of favorable uh, publicity. But uh, campaign buses really were started to come into uh, fashion in the 1940s and was kind of the middle ground between campaign trains and campaign planes. Uh, Buses were an important part of it. It's used extensively today, but the buses go where trains can't, and sometimes it's not practical for for even planes uh, to reach those destinations. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. And my guest is Edward Siegel. He's the author of Whistle Stop Politics, Campaign Trains, and the Reporters Who Covered Them. So aside from the the absence of of, of train service, regular train service, and um, problems with, with the tracks themselves, if if people are trying this today, if candidates are trying this today, what, what are the biggest challenges for them, do you think? 
money. It costs thousands of dollars to rent a train. And the, the more extensive the configuration of the train, the more costly it's going to get. You'll need at least a couple uh, engines and locomotives. You'll need a press car. You'll need a car specifically for the candidate. And you'll need several cars for the staff, VIP guests who would go on the train. So money is number one. Organization is number two. You need to have the right staff to plan the routes. You need the right staff to invite people. You need the right staff to help generate publicity. Coordination is another issue. These days, Amtrak is the default go-to place to rent a train, and you need to coordinate any plans for a train tour with Amtrak, make sure the tracks are cleared and that uh, it has the right of way and those kind of things. And the other thing you need is time. You need plenty of time to help pull this off. You simply can't get up one morning and say, I know, I'm going to do a campaign train tour today. Ain't going to happen. So you need time, money, uh, coordination, and organization and the resources to pull it off. Not many candidates can do that today. Uh, you have to be uh, have a lot of resources, you have to have a great staff, and you have to have uh, a good sense of timing as to when is the best time to uh, conduct this train tour. Well, one of the things that struck me as you were telling the story about Truman and making the unscheduled stops late at night was the security concerns that might be involved in a whistle-stop campaign. Um, and there's different kinds of those concerns. Let me just start with security concerns for the candidate, in particular, you know, obviously presidential level campaign. Um, how would those how would those be navigated if you just stuck this person on a train car where everybody knows, okay, that's that's where they are, and I could get to that, you know, down the road if I wanted to. That's probably one of the big strikes against doing a campaign train tour today is because of the security. Uh, the heckling, uh, the protests, uh, violence, uh, weapons that might be used, uh, making sure that people who come close to the train uh, have been uh, uh, examined to make sure they're not carrying any weapons or, or things like that. That's a big argument, a big concern. It It's not going to stop people because uh, Joe Biden was able to do it as a candidate in 2020 without any problems that I'm aware of. But for presidential candidates uh, today, the nominees, they would obviously have a Secret Service detail, might have additional security guards. When Franklin Roosevelt was campaigning by train in the 1930s and 40s, he had literally hundreds, if not thousands, uh, members of the Army and National Guard uh, on guard on every mile of his campaign train to make sure that there were not going to be a problem. On some trains, candidates would actually have not one, not two, but three different trains. One train would be a pilot train that would travel ahead of the main train to make sure the tracks were safe, no efforts to sabotage or derail the train. You'd have the main train, and then sometimes it would follow by a third train with supplies and additional material and additional staff, perhaps. So it could be quite an undertaking, very expensive, well-organized but uh, that's what could be involved in a modern campaign train trip today. Yeah, one of the things in particular, and you've spoken to it right there, but I'm, I was just thinking about um, 
the concerns about violence within the crowd and, and between different members of the crowd, because when you do these things inside stadiums or inside structures, you, there's a there's a control element there in terms of vetting people. But if you've just got this thing outside, then you don't have that. And we've got, you know, I think it's fair to say at least one candidate who doesn't always reject violence um, in the crowd. And so it's just, it, it, it becomes really hard for me to imagine this working today. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts about that, but. It's nothing new. As I talk in the book, there were instances of people throwing rotten tomatoes, uh, rotten eggs, uh, other kind of fruit, other kind of objects uh, at uh, candidates or their trains when they were either passing through a community or when they were stopped and the candidates were, were speaking. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the violence was unintended. Uh, I write in the book how one candidate traveling through Atlanta, he was welcomed by cannon fire as part of the welcoming ceremonies. One of the cannonballs, however, hit his train, missed him, went through one of the windows. Uh, it could have it could have been the first political assassination on a train by literally friendly fire. So security <laughs> has always been a issue. The safety of the candidates, protecting them from violence, and that'd be an important consideration if a candidate wants to campaign by train today. So we've only got about um, a minute and a half or so left, and I want to squeeze in one last question. It's a little bit different, more abstract, uh, and I, I'll try to make it as succinct as I can. But it seems to me that that there is, in American political rhetoric, this constant theme of nostalgia. Even when candidates are calling for change, they often look back to an earlier period and lift something out and say, we need to change to make it more like we used to be. Bernie Sanders had that rhetoric, for example. Uh, and, and, and you know, it's a selective look back, no doubt, but we still do. It, it seems to me that one possible advantage of a train, if you could pull it off today, is it, it kind of speaks to that nostalgia, you know, to that, to that old symbol of, and, and, and with the right candidate matched to the train method, it could be a really uh, kind of powerful uh, vision and, and symbol and, and method. I think you're absolutely right, Grant. Campaign trains is a forgotten part of our American history. It's a great piece of nostalgia. And for candidates who have the time, money, and resources to recreate those train trips, I think it would tap into a lot of things that are important to uh, Americans and a great reminder of our political past that with the passing of each generation, we tend to forget the important role campaign trains have played in our politics, culture, journalism, and elections. Well, your your book is going to be one of the things that helps us make sure that doesn't happen. That was Edward Siegel. And again, his new book is titled Whistle Stop Politics, Campaign Trains and the Reporters Who Covered Them. And it's full of really interesting political stories. Mr. Siegel, thanks again so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks. A great time, and I appreciate the opportunity. You bet. You've been listening to The Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest. 
The Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest, is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WBARBO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wbarbo.org slash Campbell Conversations.